0: I wanted to say that in many ways this feels like a spiritual sequel to The Shining in a way that Doctor Sleep actually didn't really feel to me. Well, when Sleep, did this
1: come out? This came out after The Shining, I assume?
0: After The Shining, yeah. But, okay. but yeah, I mean there's a reference to The Shining in there I don't oh, it. Oh, true.
1: But I you know, I don't know if it's before or after. He's so clever about how the way he places things.
0: friends episode 297 of the ink to film podcast where we read the book and then see the movie i'm writer luke elliott and i'm filmmaker james bailey and this week we lock ourselves in a room with stephen king's 1987 novel misery welcome listeners to season eight of ink to film we are kicking off 2024 with a claustrophobic fairly short for stephen king by his standards novel um, about Annie Wilkes and 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 just being trapped and forced to write a book. Interesting uh, meta messaging going on from
1: King in this story. Uh, to put it <laughs> <kind> mildly, <laughs> possibly reacting to not only like the how grueling it can be to write a novel, but also like how. Uh, he may see some fans and how he, maybe he he like extrapolates out from from some of the, the tensions that he was feeling about his books, I think.
0: Yeah. And that's just scratching the surface. So much going on with this book. It's so layered. Um, yes, it's built around like a central metaphor, but that metaphor is multifaceted and I think actually encompasses quite a bit. Um, and there's a lot here for creatives and writers and people who um, work in that kind of industry. But then there's also a lot here for um, anybody who's ever struggled with addiction or knows anybody who's struggled with addiction because there's a, a big element of the metaphor going on with that. And then it's also just a pretty damn good, like thriller, very cool novel. Um I, yeah, what were your what was your general reaction to reading this thing? and, and how do you feel like it ranks up there? It stacks up against the other Stephen King books we've read?
1: in a lot of ways, King likes to tell stories about fantasy or supernatural entities and horror. Yeah, and definitely supernatural. yeah, typically pretty common he will lean into the humans, surprisingly, being even more evil than these entities and things like that. In this scenario, reading this book, I kind of assumed that there would be something like that. But I think this is kind of a purely human story as far as i could tell yeah in terms i don't of think like, it's a spoiler to say that yeah. yeah in terms of what people are capable of and what happens when the you know the system fails people and in, in ways and and like what can what that can mean for others in in society it's
0: it's uh yeah pretty wild stuff so real quick we've covered 12 this will be our 12th stephen king thing we've covered uh i got I the list here so it the shining pet cemetery the outsider dr sleep carry the body the Stand, The Shawshank Redemption, Rear Window, which we did on the Why the Book Wins channel, uh, Children of the Corn, and now Misery. So this is our 12th thing. I-, I think I've maybe read one or two books of his outside of this. I'd have to review the list, but that basically en- encapsulates everything I've actually read from him, too. Um, so, yeah, that uh, with all that considered, where do you think this c- comes in for you? Or, or, or is it too early to tell? Do we need to like have our discussion first?
1: I think it's probably best to to have a discussion, but I will talk about it just in terms of my sensibilities for Stephen King. I do like that sort of supernatural threat. I, I've always found like his monsters and the way that he plays with that. Like I said, the, the human element, uh, I like how he does that. This feels so much more like Stephen King was like feeling the most extreme and vocal of his fans saying certain things about his stories and feeling like he was kind of being boxed in as an artist. And just saying, like, I- I'm going to write this crazy story about how this kind of feels to me in a really over the top way, obviously, like, like, this is the most extreme version of what he feels. But then also, I, I want to say we talked about this with The Shining, where did- he
0: went through some sort of accident or something like that, that maybe so is that is- didn't happen until 2001. This is written in 1987. So kind of amazing that he actually would get hit by a car later and it, like had severe damage to his legs, um, considering he wrote the the description here of the car accident. Yeah,
1: I honestly just assumed that he had gone through something like that and he was pulling that Not into yet. his writing. Yeah, I guess with that said, uh, he does a good job of, of kind of showing uh, how someone who feels so confident in their everyday setting can then be forced to feel so helpless. And then the way that just the depravity and the way that like he's being put up against things that are making him regress to like childhood and like his, these base instincts and pleading and, and like there's yeah. no shame in, in some of these scenarios and i, I think powerless. that as far as survival is concerned most people would would you know end up in that scenario And but he takes it to a really extreme degree it's really gruesome i mm-hmm. want to say it's one of the more and, and this is crazy to say because stephen king is so known yeah. for, for how crazy he'll go with it but this is some of the most like intense sequences
0: that i can remember from king there's S- certainly one, I think, that, that ranks up there. Um, maybe a couple, actually, now that I think about it. But one in particular stands out, which we don't want to spoil. So w- there will be a spoiler section that we'll get to here. Um, but here before the spoiler section, I just want to weigh in on where I'm at with this thing. So I think this is my favorite Stephen King novel we've read so far. Wow. Um, and I, and that's saying a lot. And I, w- I, w- I was debating it. I was like, should I really? I don't know. You know, I do like the supernatural stuff. We don't get any of that here. But ultimately for me... This hit me at a time where it was the perfect King book to read. It is so much about the push and pull between wanting to write things that you think an audience is going to like and things that you think are have some sort of artistic merit, things that you think might please critics. Um, It has to deal with addiction. It has to deal with. The call to be creative. and it also the reason I think it's a good spot for me to have read it is I think it is most interesting in an, as an analysis of how Stephen King feels about his own work after you have like a representative body of work that you have read, and I think we are, we are at the point now where we have seen the full spectrum of what he can do. Um, in that list, like we have a lot of his like greatest hits, right? His his you know 80s and 90s books that that put him on the map. Um, you have some things that are not as well regarded. You have some of the new Stephen King in there, although admittedly, I would like to read a few more, but like between the outsider and, um, Dr. Sleep, a couple of newer ones. Um, and then we have things like the Shawshank Redemption and the body that are his more literary works, um, where you can see the, the sort of full powers that he has as an author and how he can completely shift modes. Um, we haven't read much of his fantasy yet which we'll get into, um, because a lot of his, a lot of that, like, sort of frustration with fans um, bottled up when he released a novel called The Eyes of the Dragon in 1984, which was a fantasy novel, like, straight-up fantasy novel, and a lot of his fans did not like it, Um, and so this was kind of coming on the heels of that, Um, but still, all that being said, like, I feel like I I have, like, a good sense of what he's capable of uh, as an author here, and that helps inform this novel as well. So we're talking about it. And I think it's kind of difficult to pin down, like, what exactly is going on with the metaphor here. And I want to emphasize first and foremost that we're going to talk about all these ways that it's metaphorical and that it has all this thematic resonance. But it works really well just as a story about a guy being held prisoner and forced to do something and forced to do th- something to survive. Right. Um, but I think it's it's the stuff we're about to get into that takes it to another level and makes it so much more interesting to me. And and that's just like the nature of Annie Wilkes and misery in this book. I I see like there's five different instances of this. There's misery, the book that we're reading, written by Stephen King, which might be perceived as misery, the book as written by Paul Sheldon. Mm -hmm. Maybe Um, there's also a nested narrative where it's called misery returns that Paul Sheldon is forced to write. Um, There is a misery character in the book misery chastain who is the main character of misery and then there is misery the pig yep. and then there is misery as just a concept in our real world what he's and, going
1: through yeah the misery yeah, that he's right. feeling
0: and so all five of those things are kind of at play here and it's a little complicated to talk about it because you have to talk about which thing you're like yeah. which one of those are you talking about in, because in parentheses it, it, gets, it gets murky when you when you start mentioning both of them at the same time when they kind of have different meanings
1: yeah it's funny to think about because we're gonna have to almost like put subtitles or something to say like this misery is what we're <laughs> talking about because we're gonna be going so rapid fire but yeah um i want to definitely talk about like some, something you said so this is your favorite you think currently uh Stephen yeah. king novel you've read i like that idea because it is very much speaking to like you said the artist this is a book about writing a book and it's also yeah. a book about writing a book under duress like and being, and, 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 and being a writer and being a writer
0: it's also about being injured and being uh, bed like trapped in a bed and like I, I went through that after my car accident there's a lot of things that resonated with me in this book
1: yeah and the idea that you can be writing a book that you don't necessarily want to be and how artistically you can find a way for that you know what I mean like uh, if you're if you're an author who's obligated to write a sequel or something like that yeah. um, like that you're you know you've already been paid for it I can feel him speaking on that, like sort of feeling trapped in that narrative when you—that's not necessarily the story you want to tell. But then, interestingly, our character here finds ways to uh,
0: escape into that story in ways, and and just like storytelling as it's an not escape. that simple, right? Like, he, yeah, it, we as one of the really interesting things is he comes back time and again to the idea of writing these misery books. He keeps talking about how he doesn't want to write another misery book, and in fact, he has written a, like a different kind of book. At the mm-hmm. start of this. It's a um a, a book about car thief, fast cars yeah. or something, right? And he has that in his possession when, when Annie Wilkes finds him. At the same time, like he he clearly is connected to that character. He connects with readers through that character. He's he's done he's hit something that is striking a nerve. And on some level, he knows that even as he resents it, right? Like mm-hmm. it's complicated. It's not like as much as he hates that character and he hates that series, like. It's clear that maybe he's lying to himself a little bit about it. Well, it's brought me. him
1: success, for one. Yeah. Um, I think he wants to prove that that's not the only thing he can write. Right.
0: But but maybe he has made a mistake you could also take away in, the, in, in actually ending this character and ending this series. I don't know. But that's the question that the, that the whole book sort of poses, right, as as we explore it, which we'll have to get into more in spoilers. Um, I know I got a little bit light spoiler here, but I really I'm not revealing any of the big stuff that that comes down the line.
1: Who do you think you recommend this book to? Like, uh, Yeah, like...
0: that's a good question. A couple of things. Um, it This also sounds kind of up its own ass a little bit as we talk about it as far as like being an artist and being a writer. But I want to also emphasize that you don't have to be any of that because this book also works really well As a metaphor about addiction and Stephen King even said he was writing about cocaine addiction and other addictions he was struggling with at the time, he had, I think, kicked the habit at this point, or he was in the process of it. And the pull of substance and the allure of substance at the same time as you it makes you hate yourself and it lays you low and in many ways Annie represents that and and um, she literally. You know is feeding him pills in the book so there's a direct connection there um that keeps him addicted as well and it's sort of dependent on her for the pain the pain relief so ultimately i think i would recommend it for anyone who that sounds interesting to but with the caveat that i don't think this should be your first stephen king book because it works best when you have at least a sense of like i would say read the shining maybe read maybe read carrie maybe read shawshank redemption or the body Get a sense for like a little, a little bit of like the kinds of things he can write so you can see that he's not just this like one trick pony so you can understand the push pull that's going on within him as he's writing this book.
1: I don't think that if this is your first Stephen King novel I don't know that it would necessarily be Luke's reaction you know I'm trying to make sure that like people this is your first Stephen King novel. I think Luke is reacting to a body of work plus this as like a crowning maybe yeah. moment and something and, that's and, really- And very much uh, personally- objectively like speaking to and you. And personally speaking
0: to me. Yeah. It, that's a big part of it. I think uh, when we talk about fear and what, what frightens us, when we talk about horror a lot, and I think it's a highly personal thing, right? Like the things we personally find scary. And that's why you'll hear such mixed reviews of any scary movie. There will be somebody who talks about how it didn't scare them at all. You know what I mean? Like there's always that. Right. And for me, like personal demons are always going to be the thing that are most frightening. And I see so many of my own personal demons in this book. It's kind of it's kind of terrifying. Yeah. Um. So in many ways, it was one of the most frightening books of his that I've read because it's so relatable to me, at least in, yeah. in, in, in lots of different ways.
1: I also just love a Stephen King story where he's writing about a, a writer.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's got uh, it's got all the hallmarks in some sense, even though it's not supernatural. It's got a writer writing about writing. Yeah. It's got a nested narrative like it's it's a, basically a self-insert writer character. I wanted to say that in many ways, this feels like a spiritual sequel to The Shining in a way that Dr. Sleep actually didn't really feel to me. Well, when did Sleep,
1: this come out? This came out after The Shining, I assume.
0: After The Shining, yeah. But, okay. but, yeah, I mean, there's a reference to The Shining in there. I oh, true. It. But,
1: I, you know, I don't know if it's before or after. He's so clever about how the way he places things.
0: Like, it was after, I think, uh, The Shining was, like, 78 or something. Like, it was pretty early on, 82, something like that. Whereas this is 87. So, it's okay. at least a few years later. So, it is out at this point as well. It was out. This was, like, after he had had a bunch of hits in a row. Um, and he had actually already started the Bachman um sort of alias, so he was already exploring trying to write with a pseudonym and see what kind of success he could have writing sci-fi novels and other kinds of books, right? So this is definitely something Stephen King was, like, grappling with, of, like, wanting to be perceived as more than just a horror writer, Mm
1: -hmm. because he
0: was already getting labeled as this horror master, and all of his fans wanted more horror books, but he clearly wants to occasionally write other kinds of books, and whenever he would do that, fans got very upset
1: yeah one of my favorite things about this story too is that his fictional narrative that's taking place in the story is a sort of like a period piece romance kind yeah. of uh thing and then you slowly see in this version that he's writing where he's being kept captive uh it's like it slowly gets like elements of stephen king added into it and really fun yeah. like like horror it starts stephen getting darker I mean to say. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I just love that he was like maybe frustrated with being labeled as a horror writer. And then with he wrote a horror story. I would call this a horror story with like a romance narrative also baked in as well in an interesting way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. With the with, with the nested the narrative. period piece, Yeah, which, yeah. by the way, is super fascinating. Um, so it's not a spoiler to say that he's forced to write this book. He's forced to write it on this typewriter. And as over time, the typewriter starts breaking. Yeah. and um it starts to having handwritten ends and t's and stuff being put N's, in
1: t's and e's i think yeah
0: yeah so well it, it progresses over time i listened to the audiobook for a lot of this but i also had the physical copy that i was reading on, on occasion one of the things yeah. i loved about the physical copy is those sections are, you know, the regular font of the book changes to the courier font of a typewriter. And right. then the N's and the T's have a little handwritten letter in there. Yeah, it's, um, awesome. it's just a cool little touch. Like I love that stuff. And then even at the point where it turns completely handwritten, it then turns into like a script. Um, so it, very fun. Very fun.
1: Yeah. I thought that was cool. And I, you know, I think, an author like Stephen King gets that kind of leeway in his printing,
0: right? Like he he pushed for that, I, I assume. And it does add like a lot of fun. Yeah, he's, at a, he's at a level now where he can do whatever he wants, Even at this point, he'd already had so many huge bestsellers.
1: I just think it's fun to break up the story in ways and make it feel like thematically different and give yeah. it a different texture, like on the page. That's like it's playing with the medium in fun ways.
0: So, yeah, man, uh, this is going to be this reminds me of the year we covered uh, Station Eleven, in the sense that I'm starting off the year with a book that is one is I think my favorite Stephen King book. It, I'm I definitely I'm trying to I'm putting that caveat. I think because I know recency bias is a thing, right? Like yeah. I just read it, so it's probably going to be affected by that a bit. But we'll see at the end of the year because if it's my my favorite book from one of my favorite authors. This might be my book of the year and we just started out now of course we're going to read a bunch of great stuff this year so i'm going to leave the door of the
1: year luke is ready to crown the champion
0: (laughs) it might be it's going to be interesting to to return to this moment
1: I, i guess to say like where i'm at with it too like i i really thoroughly enjoyed it i think it's ranks highly in stephen king's work i don't know if it's my favorite but uh we can dig more into that that's fair
0: yeah okay so uh let's talk a little bit about the background of this book so misery won the very first bram stoker award in 1987, and it was also nominated for the World Fantasy Award for Best Novel, which is interesting. World Fantasy, when this isn't a very fantastical book, but there you go. It would do well as far as uh, sales. It would place uh, fourth on the bestseller list. Got positive reviews. Um, it was in. Wasn't until 1990 with the Rob Reiner adaptation that, of course, it would blow up into being even more popular, um, which is what we're going to cover next week. So, if you're curious about what we're going to think of the film, that's next episode. Um, it even later got a theatrical production, which starred Laurie Metcalf and Bruce Willis in 2015. Interesting. I didn't know that. So I, I found this interview uh, with Tabitha King, uh, his wife, and she said, I have read several pained, angry and offended letters from fans who mistakenly believe that Steve was recording his true feelings about his readers in misery. Its exploration of the worst aspects of celebrity fan connection is obvious and real. And uh, later on, she would say the public is frequently possessive and unforgiving without seeming to understand what they are attempting to exercise as a kind of emotional slavery. Money and fame attract the self-seeking who are willing to do anything, even if it hurts or kills you. So um, that that is also at the heart of all of this. Right. And I think that's also applicable outside of writing to this modern culture with um, Internet influencers and TikTok stars people who want to please their audience and we've we've heard a lot about this about like the push and pull of like wanting the love and attention of your audience but then also wanting to make sure you're staying true to yourself and and being artistically honest and and feel like you're creating something that you're proud of yeah right and and clearly this is something he struggled with um, and and sort of manifests here
1: I can think of a time where I wasn't as understanding towards artists, um, you know, growing up or whenever when I would be like, oh, I just want another story. Like, when is it coming? You know, yeah. two years, that's so long. And, and like, it, it's, I, I do think like, as you, especially when you're in this field, when you're in an artistic pursuit, you become much more sympathetic to it. Yeah. But also just in general, like, I, when you stop when you let go and consume other artists material, and let it take its time like you always would rather the artist have the time to create the thing they want to make i mean you say this one of the biggest examples of this is like george r. r martin at this point i know that it's like it's taken so long but like the pressure on him at this point and the way that like his fans who love him are making him miserable in ways like yeah. you can see sort
0: of a misery skew to to what he's going through in ways so it's i a, think a lot if, of a lot of like best-selling big. Authors would probably really love fa- misery and I think many of them do. Um, but again, I, I, I don't want it to seem like it's only for for that kind no. of crowd yeah because yeah. that is kind of rarefied error anyway, right like I'm, I'm not that, you know what I mean yeah. but I still really loved it. So I guess
1: I just mean to say like as fans of these peak kinds of people, it's a nice it's a nice perspective when we can kind of say like, oh shoot, like human yeah. beings remember everybody's everybody's human, we're all the same. we're just they're just trying to do the thing that makes them happy and, and hopefully please their audience.
0: And one of the things that 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 makes me think of is how frequently in the book he's trying to explain some element of storytelling to her. He's like, you know, this the the reason the book is like this is for this reason. And you got a chain, you know, he's explaining his other book that she ends up hating. And like, yeah, um, he's trying to explain the stuff. And he talks about how, like, if he was teaching a creative writing class, all these students would have been eating this stuff up. Yes. But she doesn't give a shit. She's like.
1: Just give me the fucking story. Just That's give me the
0: story. And she treats it as this, like, divine thing that is created by him. And so she just wants to know the story. And at one point, she even wants him to just tell it to her. Yeah. Because um, she gets so impatient, right? And it's like, he's, like, trying to explain, like, it doesn't just happen that way. I have to, like, create it on the page. and And even as he's engaging with this fan who doesn't understand any of it, he's being put in a life or death situation where he's forced to create. So I also loved all the ways it talked about facing the blank page and like figuring out what's going to happen next and how to craft a narrative and what is true and what isn't and how like at first he he writes a version that he that doesn't feel as true to him. Um, I love all that stuff. But let's talk about the addiction thing, because this is what King said. He said uh, this also had to do with his addiction to drugs and alcohol. Take the psychotic nurse in misery, which I wrote when I was having a tough time with dope. I knew what I was writing about. There was never any question. Annie was my drug problem. She was my number one fan. God, she never wanted to leave. So if you look at it that way, too, as as drugs, right, and the way they make you feel, the love and adoration they they seem to give you, then the way that they also hurt you and the way that they control you, uh, I think primarily, and, and, and don't allow you to live your life um, there's a lot in there too, and and I think it is both things. Like I think sometimes people will, will want to pick and choose and say like, well, what is it? Is it that or is it the is it like the reader thing? Yeah, I think it's both, and it's and I think both. that's what yeah. makes it so good is that it is both. Absolutely, it's both. Yeah, yeah, and there's enough overlap there because you can see that there's an addiction element to the adoration of your fans. So there's ob- obviously an addiction element there but then there's also the addiction of substances. And I also think it's really interesting, you know, in in writer circles that I'm in and and you know, reading about writers and knowing about writers. Addiction is a real problem in the writing community. And I love that at times he he like finds that he's actually more productive and able to like create more it's like faster and more focused than he's ever been before even if, as he's in the throes of what would be seen as, like, addiction. And that's one of the enticing things about it that that makes it so alluring for people and makes it a problem is that sometimes substances can seem to give you clarity and seem to give you uh, inspiration or seem to give you energy in order to get things done um, and, and all of the above. So I love that it's a very complex take on it. It's not just, like, drugs bad. It's, like, yeah. here's all the reasons why it's actually tempting to people and and why people fall into it
1: well and i think it's always funny to bring up with with thinking about stephen king in the throes of his addiction is like thinking about him at when he is clearly using and like times that he like like maximum overdrive is like the ultimate version of that i feel like where it's like maybe he he feels yeah maybe i hear the story
0: about kujo he can't remember writing
1: yeah so he feels so productive and he feels so like he's like I'm on top of the world. Everything I'm writing is great right now, and the drugs yeah. are giving him that euphoria and they're giving him yeah. that confidence. And then push comes to shove, and it's not necessarily his best work. Um, so, so you know, there's that element to it as well. And and to on the other side of of addiction, this character has been captured and is being forced to write this book. And in some cases, the character is commenting on how uh fascinating it is that they're they are so productive like normal yeah. schedule keeping and it's almost like uh, like stephen king saying like imagine what i could get done if like no other distractions were around for me as horrific as this is yeah and the, the idea of like under your head like what what could you do and like you know for maximum efficiency and maximum production but like that's no way to live obviously
0: yeah and he, he there's some of those passages are really interesting where he's talking about how Writing is a, a thing where you're, I forget, there's a, there's a line in there. He quotes, uh, uh it, it's, it's like studying tragedy from a place of peace or, or looking at strife from a place of peace, because if you are in crisis, it's usually very difficult to produce and, so, but, but you're often reflecting on crisis when you're writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he also then gives the counter to that because he's able to obviously produce, but that's because at the same time, you can look at writing as an escape and a way to get out of your life and into another world. And he talks about the hole in a book, um, which I'm going to read, a, read the quote about, um, which is, was really interesting, the hole in the page that he like falls into. Um, and, and I loved all of that. But let's let's talk a little bit about where he got the idea, because I think that's always, always interesting to us. So King attributed a dream he had while on a transatlantic flight to London, with the situation and characters that became fleshed out in misery. He noted that he wrote the idea on an American Airlines cocktail napkin, When he woke up so that he could make sure to remember it, writing, quote, she speaks earnestly, but never quite makes eye contact, a big woman and solid all through. She is an absent of hiatus. I wasn't trying to be funny in a mean way when I named my pig Misery. No, sir. Please don't think that. No, I named her that in the spirit of fan love, which is the purest love there is. You should be flattered. So that's what he wrote down. Kind of just occurred to him in a dream. Um He also says that after that, uh, they stayed at the Browns Hotel in London, and he wrote 16 pages in a steno notebook. King initially thought that the book would only be around 30,000 words, but it ended up being almost four times that. Um, Not not surprising with King that it was longer, but still on the shorter side, as we pointed out. So I think it's time to get into spoilers so we can kind of uncork all the stuff we've been wanting to talk about. So novelist Paul Sheldon has plans to make the difficult transition from writing historical romances featuring the heroine Misery Trastain to publishing literary fiction. Annie Wilkes, Sheldon's number one fan, rescues the author from the scene of a car accident. The former nurse takes care of him in her remote house, but becomes irate when she discovers that the author has killed Misery off in his latest book. Annie keeps Sheldon prisoner while forcing him to write a book that brings misery back to life. In the broadest sense, that is the plot of misery. Yeah. So, but let's talk let's let's like move through it somewhat chronologically. What do you think of these opening there's like an opening quarter of the book where he's captured, um, he wakes up, he discovers his situation, he discovers his injuries, meets Annie for the first time, um, and it isn't until about a quarter of the way through where he actually starts writing this book for her. Um, what did you think of this lead up?
1: At first, he also thinks that she is helping him, uh, you know, very early on, and then he realizes, like, wait, why am I not in a hospital? Yeah, right he now? has
0: this like question he keeps asking, but he's like, wait a minute, if all of this is true, why am I not in a hospital? Why am I in your house? Exactly. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, and also just to note, like, I know, I know, the entire country has been going through this like pretty massive blizzard. Um, and that's yeah. very much like what this story evokes to is like they're kind of like trapped almost at times or she she sells yeah. it as they're trapped. There's in a the snowstorm.
0: There's a snowstorm when he has his accident, um, yeah. but he actually attributes it much more to getting drunk, Yeah. which again ties into that whole addiction problem. Like that's what got him in this mess. Right. Um, I think the there, first champagne, there, he was celebrating completing the book, decided what? to drive anyway, even though he shouldn't.
1: Yeah, I think uh, um, the first thing that, and he tells him as, as far as like why they didn't go to hospital is because the snows, they're like snowed in like snowstorm kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and he can't even get out of bed at this point. So he kind of buys that. Um, one of the main things I wanted to know early on too, is like, as he's starting to write this story, there's these really fascinating sec- sections. And I thought, honestly, the whole book would progress and continue this way, where a word ends a section in the real world and then begins a section in his fictitious misery returns narrative. Yeah. And, and in the way that it ebbs and flows back and forth out of it, I was like, oh, this is so fun to see, like, yeah. how, what the word is that's going to transition us into it. And, and you can segment. even,
0: like, I mean, King is working on this, like, next level, too, that's so fascinating because he's he's threading in things into the Misery Chastain novel, uh, Misery Returns, that are clearly, like, the situation that Paul Sheldon is is enduring coming out in the writing right like you're seeing all these things that he's been thinking about and dealing with coming out in the the novel he's writing and so he's like uh, he's doing this uh, like you know inception act of like going multiple levels down where it's like king up here but then you get into paul sheldon then you get into paul sheldon's book and then you know it's it's, i love that stuff
1: yeah, and one of the things I waited to talk about till we were in spoilers too is like I mentioned, this isn't supernatural, but the the our main antagonist Annie here has like a different side to her that appears at times that she almost doesn't seem to be in control of, and they, they you know it's it's chalked up to her I mental. One of the things Ill- that makes her really scary. Yeah, it's chalked up to her mental illness and the things that she has going on. And he's starting to piece together because she's mentioned like she was on the stand at times and he's realizing like oh she's something went on some some like you know she she's kind of on the not on the run but clearly like
0: she had been in trouble with the law in some way there's a mystery element to this story uh what is what is annie's deal what's her history because he's getting little bits and pieces of it he's trying to piece it together how dangerous is this woman is an ongoing question that we end up finding out is extremely dangerous yeah um but 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 early on you don't know that necessarily and i love the way he starts to hint at that with her explosive rage
1: yeah and he he mentions like the way she has like this thousand yard stare almost like like she she, kind of has like catatonia she goes into yeah yeah annie's gone and it's totally like cold being that's there in the room with him and i think Mm -hmm. one of the first times is with the rat right the rat trap or the mouse trap and that's starting to to see when she that's that's one of the times where she's like
0: violent while in one of those states
1: and i felt like there's story was going to lean into like him getting stockholm syndrome and being uh at the beginning at least i felt like maybe he was gonna start like loving this this person based on like how she was doting on him and treating him and all this other stuff. And then it turned into very quickly. He was like, Oh shit, no, it's not that kind of story. It's more so, uh, she is like, what is she, what is she capable of if I don't listen to her? And it, it starts, it starts out with small things. Yeah. Like she'll, I don't know. I think she like hits him on the leg where he's been injured at first. And yeah, she, that's like the that. first time
0: she like, yeah, she, she punches him like in a, in a particularly painful spot on the leg and causes all kinds of problems. And then she starts leaving him in which he's forced to, to you know try and scramble for pain medication she leaves yeah. him and he's
1: like no food no water for like a couple yeah. days
0: and he, he figures out that she knows like just enough like she's she's had this history as a nurse nurse she so she knows enough to like keep him alive um but also like it's you know clearly a terrible caretaker with the whole like leaving him for days and stuff um so he keeps coming back to this uh shahrazad uh fable he keeps mentioning it and talking about it. How he's trying to be Shahrazad, and she is like that, and the situation's like that. So I, I think this is described in the book somewhat, but I wanted to like pin it down because I didn't have a good sense of what it was. Yeah. So this story of Shahrazad, um, is a Middle Eastern story. It's about this uh Persian uh king who um his first wife is, is unfaithful to him, and so uh, I think he has her killed. And he decides he's going to bring in a new virgin every day um, that is going to be his wife for the day. And then at the end of the day or the next morning, he's going to have her beheaded so that she doesn't have a chance to betray him. Um, So he's doing this. He's in the process of doing this. And the Scheherazade character um, comes in. And she hatches this plan with her younger sister. And at the end of the day, she has her younger sister ask Scheherazade to tell her a story. And so she's like, okay, I'll tell you a story. And she starts telling her younger sister a story, but she gets only halfway through. And while she's telling it, it's like a really good story. And the Sultan gets really interested in it. Um, The monarch, the king, whatever he was. Um, He gets really interested in it and wants to know the ending, but she won't finish it until the following day. So he decides to let her live. Following day, she finishes that story, but then begins another one. And so she's able to She starts stringing it along. Right. And, sh- and it ends up being a thing where like she ends up having multiple children with him and he ends up falling in love with her. And I guess happily ever after. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, an sto- it's an old story. It's an old story. Very weird. Um, but I think the key element that is obviously present here is that she's telling a story to save her own life mm-hmm. and her ability to write a good story, to tell a good story and keep the audience engaged is what allows her to continue to live. And that's yeah. literally the situation that Paul, Paul Sheldon finds himself
1: in. Well, be, one of the most interesting things early on is too is that he's going to just kind of like quickly come up with some kind of story to bring back um, misery in his yeah. story, and yeah, uh, and she's like no, something. and she's like no, that's bullshit. She's like, you yeah. can't do it in a in like a
0: half-assed way. So then he just he just like writes it off like it didn't happen, and she's like, no, she died in the last book. Like you can't just act like that didn't happen. You have to find a way to, to, to actually, like, honestly get past that.
1: Yeah, so she sets him... She actually, like, gives him an idea, and he runs with it, and it was helpful, and it kind of blows the whole thing open, and he has, like, multiple characters that have been sung yeah. by bees. Very
0: Edgar Very Edgar Allan Poe buried um, alive. solution to, like... Actually, she did get buried and now she's down there like clawing at the, you know, coffin and we get some pretty horrific imagery and they end up digging her up and finding out that, you know, she is alive in her, in her little, literal grave. Um, so I thought that was just fun. Like you said, it's a very horror novelist solution.
1: <laughs> yeah. And Annie keeps noticing how she's like, this isn't like the other misery stories. Like this is getting like yeah. really dark and, and crazy. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, yeah the author's
0: some... going through some shit right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, There was a quote I, I mentioned earlier that I wanted to read. It's about the whole like falling into the whole thing, um, which is something that, uh, you know, I've written two books now. Um, I'm currently querying the second one for, for an literary agent. And I just, this resonated a lot with me. So he says, quote, as always, the blessed relief of starting a feeling that it was like falling into a hole filled with bright light as always the glum knowledge that he would not write as well as he wanted to write as always the terror of not being able to finish of accelerating into a brick wall as always the marvelous, joyful, nervy feeling of journey begun. Um, I love that. And it's so true because there's so much you have to just accept when you go to write a book about. The thing I write is not going to be as good as I want it to be. It just won't be like in your head when you have this idea of the book you want to write, it is perfect in every way. And when you actually have to put words to paper, it will never be that. And so you have to let go of that perfection. Right. And that can be really difficult. And then, yeah, I love that idea of like accelerating into a brick wall, because often even if you have like somewhat of an idea of how it's going to end, you don't know if it's going to work. So as you're as you're writing this book and you're doing all this work, it can start to feel like you're just barreling towards this ending and you're like, maybe it's a dead end and I'm about to crash. Yeah. Um, and so there's a, there's an element to just trust there and just hope that you're not going to write that way. Um, and it's a, yeah, it's a it's a it's a really bizarre process that I don't think if you haven't written a book, it's um it is kind of unlike anything else. Um, although in I say that it's probably also similar in, in lots of ways to other things, but it's it is also highly singular, I think, and this gives some really good insight to, into that.
1: Yeah, it seems to be one of the most isolating artistic pursuits you can have, right? Like, especially if you're writing a full-length novel, like that's yeah. such a such an amount of effort thrown into one project that then you start showing people when you're when it's completed. I feel like not not many other things can you can you I guess you can show sections and and. You know parts but um i you mentioned the hole and i i thought that a few ways that king used this to good effect was one there was a time when after annie had done something horrific he was he sat down to try to write to escape but then he mentioned like the hole was covered over the hole yeah. was, was like couldn't filled in it. and so then it couldn't do it at that point yeah and um another another great element too was uh this is to jump way ahead but at the end when he finishes the book how he, how he talks about completing a book how he says like it feels the same as it always does like it's it's like a trap it's like it's like yes you're accomplished but it's also like this is ended and then it's doubly so for our, for paul because him finishing the book means that there's a uh you know a- a conflict or a conclusion that's that's uh eminent for him as well
0: yeah he knows that this is the end of whatever's going on here now like you know they're gonna die or he's gonna have to kill her or something's gonna have to happen when as soon as he finishes yeah. this thing
1: but let's talk about like why he gets so desperate to that point because of the things that she does to him
0: yeah she does lots of stuff to him but um i think when it gets truly horrific is um he gets out at one point, with his or a couple points with his wheelchair, and he's able to get into the house. He's still locked in, so he can't escape while she's out of the house. And he starts finding out some of these answers we've talked about. How there's this mystery, and he starts finding out that from from everything he can understand from reading this uh, memory lane book, that scrapbook. Yeah, she's she's a straight up serial killer and has been killing people since she was a child. Um, in many different ways. Um, It sounds like maybe accidental. She lit a fire that killed some people uh, that were like annoying her. Her father, perhaps, or stepfather, um, fell down the stairs. Uh, There was a dead cat that it seems like he linked to her. And then he realizes like these are literally like a scrapbook of her kills, which is actually a thing that serial killers often do is have some sort of keepsake or or way to remember. Trophies. And and then it goes through her. uh, She becomes what is called like an angel of death type killer where she starts taking these jobs where she is like killing the very old or the very sick um who otherwise were looking like they were going to die already and then like often these become very difficult for people to um track down and for for like people to even realize what's going on and unfortunately this is also a real thing that that has happened you know several times um and even recently in england there was a notorious case of a, of a woman who killed a bunch of babies um, and that's another thing that we find out that she has done. She has started killing infants in a, you know, a maternity ward. Um, in Before media. they're even
1: given names in some yeah. cases. And yeah. she
0: says something about how she doesn't feel like they're in yet. Um, yet. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is like there's super bizarre things going on in people's heads. I mean, it's very sick, very, you know, psychologically damaged people in these situations. Um, and he gets into a lot of that. Um, but then she also like kills a guy with an axe later on um and, and in a very violent way chopped him up it seems like um and that sort of leads into some of the more violent stuff we're going to see and that was like the one thing for me as someone who does consume a decent bit of true crime stuff that i'm not saying is impossible but is extremely unlikely for a serial killer especially one who's been at it as long as, as as she has been at this point to completely switch the mode of killing it's just very unusual usually they find a way to do it. And they can kind of stick to that. And she is uh, essentially a fairly non-violent killer in the sense of like dismemberment and confrontation. She's killing people with poison, killing people with medications, things like that. Um, it would be very unusual for someone to make the jump to ax murdering somebody.
1: Yeah, she does. Uh, he notices in her that she is like her episodes, if you want to call it that. I don't know the correct terminology for that, but they're becoming closer but together. And possibly, like, this other catatonia Catatonia, um, Mm -hmm. moments that she's having are becoming more frequent. And when she is in that, she's kind of, like, capable of anything. And, yeah, I I guess uh, he eventually gets strong enough to the point where he can wheel around the house. When she's gone, he rifles through a bunch of stuff. He finds pills. He gets a knife at one point, hides it under his bed. He's, like, planning on trying to figure out a way to best her. Well, because he's
0: realizing at this point that, like, especially after he finds out that she has the history of killing all these people that like, she's not going to ever let him live. Like, right. Leave here alive.
1: And we also get a story eventually about like a
0: previous lover that she had that also, Oh, she, also so she, was one of her victims. Yeah. It seems, Oh no, wait, no. Did she divorce him and he was still alive? Maybe he something, was still alive. Something like that. Yeah. He, he yeah. wanted to get divorced. Cause I think uh,
1: Paul realizes that he probably figured out like some of the stuff she's going that she through.
0: She was doing something. Yeah. So
1: uh, this leads to eventually she sets, this really uh, kind of clever thing where she sets like threads uh, on the, on the crown her, her own hair on the door, I think. And on the scrapbooks yeah, they're and, like and things, the like things that. and stuff so that, so that she can see if they'd snap, if they've snapped then. That, and so she realizes that, and this is, she realizes well before Paul has any like idea that, that she's been doing all this and knows. And that uh, keeps and, coming
0: back to how, like, I kept seeing him underestimate her. Yeah. Um, and, and, and as he was, one of his superpowers is his ability to imagine things. And that's sort of demonstrated throughout. And it's also that generalist knowledge that authors often develop. Like he kind of knows a little bit about a lot of stuff yeah. and that helps him, that helps him a bit here too. Like he's done past research about how to pick locks. And so he's able to do stuff like that. And like, he he just has a lot of knowledge and in, in different uh, categories, but yeah, he, the one thing he does continue to do early at least is underestimate her. And, and, um, it not until she's continues to demonstrate how crafty she is and how kind of one step ahead of him she is that he start i think to realize that he's been underestimating her
1: and, and you mentioned the, the the imagination and the creativity that he he actually like in his mind's eye will will kind of foresee how he thinks scenes are being playing out like yeah. what yeah Annie would be saying to him in certain scenarios if he was doing something so he develops like spirit versions of some of the characters like like that are speaking to him. So he starts to develop like voices in his own head at times. Yeah. Um, And so like, you know, even scenes with like police or her out
0: in town and all this. Oh, I love the part where he's imagining sports, sport casters, like announcing his desperate attempt to get pills. And yes, like Stephen King, just like he's so clever and finding little ways to make scenes interesting and unique. And like that, that was one of them that I was like, damn, that was clever. That was a smart way to do that.
1: So basically eventually she, she thrusts on him, The knowledge that she knows that he's been going around grabbing stuff. And
0: she's also kind of wrong because she mentions like she's noticed that threads are broken upstairs and in the cellar. And she sees that he's she thinks he's been getting everywhere. And he's like, I couldn't have gone to some of those places. There's like rats and there's other ways they could have just broken over time. And so he realizes that even her little system is imperfect. But that plays right into her paranoia. She's like, oh, you could have thrown yourself off the wheelchair and climbed up there like you could have done it. So she thinks he's doing even more than he's actually doing.
1: And this builds to the scene that's pretty gruesome where uh, she finds the knife and she gives him like a really massive dose of some kind of... uh... She injects him with a a pre-op shot, yeah. Yeah, so he's... he's Like, what does that mean? Yeah, he can't move, basically. Uh, And she uses the knife to cut his foot off.
0: No, she uses a rusty ax oh, to you're cut right. his yeah. foot off. You're right. The knife was <laughs> yeah. for something else. Yeah. She, yeah. The, she found that and she almost got cut on it when it made her mad. But then, like, yeah, she brings in an ax and um, she, like, slathers it in something to, like, you know, make it keep it clean. But then he notices, like, spots of rust on it, which is super disturbing. Um, and then, yeah, she takes an ax to his to his foot, chops yeah. it clean off. Um, and by clean, I mean, it takes several hits. Yeah. Um, Really horrifying, and then takes a blowtorch yep. to cauterize the wound. Um, and one of the most yeah d- like disgusting sequences I think I've ever read from Stephen King. And something else
1: that really just zeroes in on how crazy this story can get is like the ne- the following morning she's like tending to him as a nurse would, like so. Like, like acting as if nothing happened and it wasn't her fault. It was part of his injury from, you know, Well, she blames
0: it something. all on him. No, she's yeah. like, it's all, you know, this is your fault. You caused it to happen. Like, I want, I actually care about you, but if you're going to continue to misbehave, this is what happens, right? It's, it's that kind of, you know, situation. She justifies everything she's doing as like, he caused this. He right. brought it onto himself earlier
1: on. She throws like food against the wall or a drink against the wall. And yeah, eat, look like, what you what made you me do. do. Look, yeah. what are you doing? You did this. And and then eventually he like complains on the typewriter that like the tea isn't working anymore. And that's when she, I think, takes the knife and cuts his thumb off.
0: Yeah. So well. right after this, we find out that she's chopped a thumb off. Uh, maybe maybe both thumbs. I, I I wasn't clear on if he had both thumbs missing or if it was just one. And then she like brings him a cake with it is the center candle. Um, And what I thought was like a Stephen King couldn't quite resist the opportunity to go truly horrific with his imagery here. Um, That's very over the top, that part. Um, But, you know, that's Stephen King for you. Um, He's if he's not going supernatural, he's at least going to give us some of that stuff. Um, And then and then um, we can talk about when the one cop does show up. Um, and, and similarly, he tries to get the cop's attention and then she's forced to kill the cop, she, like stabs him with a cross a bunch of times Yeah, uh, as like a trooper and then, um, and then runs him over with a lawnmower <laughs> Lawnmower, yep. over his head, <laughs> over his runs head. His head over. Yeah. yeah. So that's another very just horrific Stephen King moment of, of unbelievable violence. <laughs> so you can imagine at this point, our main character, Paul
1: is so, uh, traumatized and yeah. like he clearly is dealing with it Uh even at this he gets point, to the point
0: where he's so afraid of her that he won't even make a noise the next time the police come which I actually thought was really true to life because in these situations where people are held captive often that's the reason why it takes so long and it's not their fault but like they become so terrified of their captors that they'll even go into public sometimes and won't say anything to people because they become so convinced. Um, of the ultimate power that this person holds over them that they can't they just can't bring themselves to to go against them.
1: Well like I say, by, by even by the end when when um things turn around for for Paul and, and people come to save the day, which is again jumping ahead some, he still can't believe it. Like he's still yeah. he he's talking to them and he's like, don't underestimate her.
0: Don't oh, yeah. you know don't let anyone At that point you. he's he's convinced of her almost supernatural yeah, yeah she calls her a goddess many times and, and yeah. that's this whole this whole uh metaphor about her being this idol this stone idol um and, and and sort of an unforgiving goddess um one thing i wanted to talk about was there's a section i noticed where he calls annie wilkes something interesting so let me read this annie wilkes was the perfect audience a woman who loved stories without having the slightest interest in the mechanics of making them She was the embodiment of that Victorian archetype, constant reader. And so a reason I found this fascinating is the Stephen King fandom refers to themselves as constant readers, his constant readers. Oh. And I I was reading some forums about this. This isn't the first time that he used the phrase constant reader to to, to describe um, his fans. I think it it had been talked about at some point before that, um, as far as I could tell. I don't know when they started referring to themselves as that, and I don't know if there's any connection to this moment of misery or not. Hmm. But it would be pretty ironic if it wasn't, right? Like the fact that Annie is the concert reader, this like, yeah, you that's, know, pretty manipulative, the idealized
1: reader is, and and,
0: yeah. and it's I don't know, maybe it's maybe it is or was originally intended to be sort of darkly humorous to call yeah. themselves that. Maybe
1: that's probably what know. it is, honestly. But uh, yeah. yeah, the idea of kind of likening yourself to Annie is not necessarily what I would do as a Stephen King yeah. fan. But hey, you know, the, I think we're all in it for the dark humor. You know, as Stephen King fans, it's all, you yeah, know. I can see the appeal of, of naming
0: yourself that too. Definitely I get it. Um, but I just don't I don't think many people at this point know or care about that connection. I think it's just that's just what they call the, themselves now. Yeah. Constant readers.
1: And I also think it's interesting because Stephen King is saying that like she doesn't think about the process or dig deeper. And exactly. like if you're it's not, saying it's not that complimentary. <laughs> if you're saying that about yourself is you're you're really saying that you you know you consume art on a very like surface level.
0: Yeah, and, and you just want more of it and you don't care about how it's made and you don't care about the person behind it. Yeah. yeah that's 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 the implication there. I did love the shining reference we got. He talked she talks about how there's a caretaker who burned it down years ago, went the crazy overlook. up there. Yeah the the at the Hotel. overlook. Yeah. And um Again, that's where I was like, yeah, this is totally kind of a spiritual sequel, right? So much of that book is about struggling to write and the pressure to write while dealing with addiction and dealing with demons.
1: isolation, right? And, isolation.
0: Yeah. Oh, that also reminds me, uh, I read this quote that I thought applied here. I do two different kinds of books. I think the books like The Stand, Desperation, and the Dark Tower* series as books that go out. Then there are books like Pet Cemetery, Misery, The Shining, and Dolores Claiborne that go in. Fans usually either like the outies or they like the innies, but they don't like both. (laughs) Um, I don't know how true that is. I think a lot of fans do like both, but like, it was interesting that he said that, but I hadn't thought about that, about how he does have books that are very isolation heavy and very focused on the psyche and the, and, and inner struggles. And then he does have books that are more venturesome and like the sand where you go all kinds of locations.
1: Yeah. You speaking of his other work, you mentioned earlier um, how his fans didn't react well to him venturing into fantasy, and I think it's yeah. so interesting in today's day and age with all of what he's worked on. Like even recently, he released a book called I think Fairy Tale that did pretty well, from what I understand. Yeah. And then The Dark Tower, I see people talk about The Dark Tower all the time in lists of like greatest fantasy series to read. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah, warm. I
0: think I think the fans have come around on this somewhat, um, but I can see that there there was probably many holdouts. And when you have a fandom as large as his, there's always going to be a vocal minority who are going to seem representative of a larger group than they actually are, who are going to be writing him letters and being very angry with him. And he's gonna. I can see him thinking that this is a representative of a larger chunk of his audience than maybe it is also. I think attitudes about this kind of stuff have changed a little bit over time, or I want to think that, where people are a little bit more open to their storytellers trying different kinds of things. That being said, you mentioned George R. R. Martin earlier. I can tell you right now, anything he publishes from until he finishes *Song of Ice and Fire*, the number one thing reaction from his fans are going to be is going to be anger because they only want those books and nothing else from him right now, even though yeah. he's continuing to publish other things. They don't want well, Not to
1: mention his involvement in like Elden Ring, which I know is really highly regarded in- involvement and, in
0: yeah. anything his involvement with house of the dragon and uh, any of that Iron stuff. They Blood, don't, they yeah. don't want any of it. They want yeah. the books and that's it. So that's a clear example of like, that is still a thing that goes on at least in that superstardom level. Yeah. Um, Interesting uh, too, people. because
1: speaking of like someone being stuck in a genre, like I know he was well known for sci-fi as well. Uh, George
0: R. R. Martin so yeah he was yeah Yeah, I mean I don't think that's a big part of his brand anymore but before before Song of Ice and Fire yeah so I I, another quote I wanted to read here um, a nature of writing thing that I really liked he says writers remember everything especially the hurts strip a writer to the buff point to the scars and he'll tell you a story of each small one from the big ones you get novels a little talent is a nice thing to have if you want to be a writer the only real requirement is the ability to remember the story of every scar. Art consists of the persistence of memory. Um, I really liked that. Um, and I think it's it, there's always this big debate about the suffering of artists and how, how important is a suffering artist? How important is having suffered to creating art? Um, These are all ongoing debates and and this doesn't decide anything for me, but there is an element of truth to being able to look back and remember points of strife, conflict, suffering, pain, and finding ways to put that into your art because that's often where you'll find like truth that people will connect with. Um so I, I it, that kind of stuff is really fascinating to me and it reminds me a little bit of reading on writing which is another book of his I've read a famous craft book that I actually think is quite good and he he gets into this kind of stuff a little bit in that book too. So as we approach the ending here, uh Paul Sheldon has realized when he ends, when he finishes writing this manuscript, he's either going to die or she's going to die or they're both going to die. But he's still able to sort of fall through that hole in the paper and write this story. And in this story, misery has been resurrected in a sense, discovered that she has this like rare allergy and they do go on this journey to Africa in which they're dealing with all these different goddesses and these priestesses. And um, he finds out that there's like all these many different kinds of gods. Um, And that narrative, I will admit I wasn't following as closely as like the, the overarching narrative, but there is like something interesting going on there too, because If we want to look at it metaphorically, as I've talked about with Misery, like, how does this all tie into addiction? What's the message here? And that's something that I want to sort of have in our minds as we talk about the ending here and like what do you think the message is of this book? Right. So at the end, what actually happens is he 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 completes the novel for her. But then he he, he's like, I'm going to actually cause her pain and the way that I can do that is by burning this book in front of her, because it's the one thing she cares about. It's the one thing she wants before she dies and before she probably kills them both. Um, and so he, he's able to steal this lighter fluid, a match, calls her up and burns the, the, the manuscript in front of her. She jumps on it. He hits her over the back with the typewriter, something he's been thinking about doing, um, and then falls on top of her when she's like on the ground. He has the burning manuscript, and he starts shoving it in her mouth. Yeah, (laughs) literally at one point,
1: shoving it down her throat. Down her throat. uh, So so imagine Stephen King writing about shoving it down an audience member's throat.
0: Yes. Yeah, Yeah. that's the one thing is this is full 80s King. So there's a lot of like holy shit descriptions where it's like maybe a bit borderline or even over the line. And um, I just mean to yeah. say
1: like, like there's sometimes that I feel like King is so fed up that he wants to yeah. shove a story down someone's throat. Like he, yeah. you know, it's, it's kind of angry. He literally again. says
0: suck my book. To yeah. her. So <laughs> that, that is a phrase that comes out. Yeah. Um. But yes, yeah, so he starts shoving it down her throat, choking her with it. Um. She's on fire and burning. She's like, she can't talk. Um. And then she like goes still and he like st- tries to crawl away. Um, and then she starts doing this zombie thing <laughs> where she's still alive. She starts coming after him. He has to try and escape from her. He closes a door on her. Um, she hits her head on a, on a table or mantelpiece, mantelpiece, yeah. I think at one point, um, but that doesn't seem to kill her. Right. And then she's like trying to come after him. Um, at one point he sees her fingers underneath the doorway in a very like horror moment. He's like, hits the fingers and gets them to go away. And, and then finally the cops come um, who, who had been here earlier and we're, we're sniffing around. Um, and he tells them that's when he's like, you know, be careful when you go in there. He's like convinced she's still going to be in there and she's going to kill him. Um, but then they go in and they're like, she's not in here. Um, and, and that's what makes him scream. And that was like the end of the whole section at the house is he just like screams in horror at the fact that she's not in there. Um, and we come to find out the reason she's not in there. She actually went out to the, to the, uh, to like her barn and was getting a chainsaw. And then that's where they found her dead. I think because we get a couple different versions of the ending here. Um, we get a version where she actually is still alive and like in his like unit waiting for him and she chops his head off and murders him and yeah. um, she's been like waiting for him um, or we get version where she's like still out there. But then we finally get the reveal of like, no, she actually did die. And it seems that the mantelpiece hit was what killed her but I guess it didn't kill her yet and it waited a little bit. And that's why she was able to get out there yeah. pretty un- like crazy that she was able to do all of that. Very um, Michael Myers, yeah.
1: right? Like, like, you Very know, can't, Myers. can't take him down can't take her down. Uh... But it
0: also creates her as this like almost supernatural entity. Right. And almost like she can't be killed. And like, she is kind of still out there haunting him. Exactly. And a threat to him. And I like that because it ties into the metaphor of addiction and the, the relationship with the fans. Right. And how, um, She's still lurking. She's still there. She's still calling to him. Now, all that being said, one of the really interesting details here at the end, is he didn't actually burn the book. He hid it, and he burned a fake. And I thought, okay, this blows open some of the, like, thematic elements a little bit for me, too. Um, Not a bad way, but an interesting way, because that's kind of a... Like, if he was being truthful, and and doing the thing as intended, and as like if he was truly burning the thing she cared about and that was the act of defiance, the destruction of it, that would be one thing. But instead he fakes that he does it. And then he and goes, turns around and sells that book and makes millions off of it. Yeah. Because it's his most popular book he's ever written. Um, with the only book that might, uh, exceed it said to be if he were to actually tell the tale of what happened with misery uh, or, or what happened with Annie Wilkes which you could maybe read the book we're reading as that yeah. right like he also he mentions do, that, do that
1: he also mentions that if he did write that book that he would probably embellish it and f- yep. fictionalize it in some ways so, <laughs> and and, and,
0: that, and I love that because if if that's this book then you can see there's elements of that where like he takes certain things and like kind of like you know, like he has that scene where she's waiting in his, in his, you know, condo and chops his head off. And like, there's all these elements where it's like, that didn't happen. And he's kind of playing fast and loose with it. Um, And I don't know, I love all of that. And then it also gets back to the nature of suffering, right? How he's harnessing the suffering to go on to create more art and make millions off of it, even though he went through this horrific series of events.
1: I also thought of it as like a reclaiming of your own work kind of thing. Like he he put all the blood, sweat and tears into that, even under duress, even though she wanted him to do it. He still told the story he wanted to, which was, different than what she was expecting. She kept talking about how it was dark. And then at the end of it, he's like, you're not going to take my effort from me. You're not going to take all the suffering and everything I went through. And I thought about this a lot too near the end where it's like, you could read this as just like the journey of a writer creating a novel and how it can feel like you're sacrificing so much and how it can feel like you go through this grueling process and you feel like you're losing a part of you in ways and like all of this suffering builds up and you're so in your own head about it. Um, and how it almost you can see like on the other side of it being like that's the battle some of the authors have to go through to to pull that out of themselves and
0: in a really dramatic way, obviously, but in a way that I found to be kind of interesting to think about. So when I kept talking about that thematic resonance and, and here at the end, the fact that he didn't burn the book and that he goes on to sell it, um, like you said, could be seen as kind of a reclaiming of it. Um, but let's look at like the metaphor, right? The metaphor is that if Annie is addiction and the the substance itself, the love and adoration of fans, and the process of writing this book is a torturous one. He's doing it against his will. And then his act of defiance is to destroy it. He then, it's revealed, didn't destroy it and goes on to sell it after he's had this act of defiance, which undercuts the act a little bit, right, in this metaphor. And as a metaphor for substance addiction, he's then profiting off of the thing he made while addicted. And like we talked about, it in some ways improved his, his output and improved his ability to focus. And he wouldn't have written this book in the way that he did if he wasn't forced to do it by Annie Wilkes. So he's then profiting off of the ill-gotten gains, right? Like the, the stuff that he didn't want to do, he's done, and he's profiting off of it and he's sort of sacrificing that artistic part of himself. So as much as this is a redemptive story or positive story about someone overcoming, right? You can view this as a process of overcoming addiction. That gets muddied for me with the way things play out because in some ways he still feels like he's a slave to that part of himself and a slave to that drive and like the 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 desire to have more misery books and, um the only thing that I think brings it back a little bit is that at the end, the very last thing we see is he's coming up with an idea for like a literary sounding novel about a, a guy, a boy finding a skunk and like taking it in a, in a shopping cart, um, which, um, yeah. And um, he's able to write that at the end and he finds that he is able to get into that. So that's maybe him going back to that side of himself. But it, it shows to me that this is an ongoing thing. It's not done. It's not settled. And I I like that because, of course, in Stephen King's life, this isn't settled. This is something that's going to continue to to he's going to continue to struggle with. And maybe he does earn a victory at some point. But like he doesn't say he's never going to write another misery book. I noted at the end there. Um, I think the door is open and you could imagine that after the success of this last one, people are going to want more misery books. And maybe Paul Sheldon's going to write them, um, which then kind of feels like he failed. Right.
1: Yeah. You could see it that way. The interesting thing, too, to note is like he he after this traumatic experience, he can't write anymore. He talks about how he wanted to pick up writing and he wanted to start writing something else. And it wasn't until he found like a new spark. So that does feel like a new beginning in ways. And it does feel like kind of a positive yeah. way to leave it. But he clearly in the, in a scene right before he starts writing, he sees um Annie pop up and he has to like use may, possibly some therapy techniques that he's learned to like sort of blink like he shuts his eyes and opens again and she's no longer in his doorway and his condo yeah. kind of thing. So, like, like you said, maybe some lingering effects for sure and something that's that's always going to be there, but possibly like, a I don't know, an arc that's that's been like somewhat completed for, as yeah, far as this it, is it, concerned.
0: I, th- I think so, because ultimately I say all of that because those are all questions I had where I come down on it is that in the act of defiance and in the act of besting annie and killing her he took the story of misery from her from the fans from mm-hmm. the addiction from the substance and made it his and yes maybe it was it's it's going to be forever tied to that and to that that struggle he went through through that addiction he went to but he he like took it for himself and said this is mine to do with as i please yeah. And I think that's why ultimately it's still a positive ending for me. Um, it's like still recognizing, yes, that's an element to this it's always going to exist. But I did it for myself. And at yeah. the end, he completed that book because he actually wanted to know how it ended. He talked about that. He's like at the very he didn't know it was going to work. He was like, I'm going to try this shit, but it might not work and I might die. I still want to finish this book. Yeah. Because he was he was attached to it. And that to me gets to the to the whole thing about popular fiction versus literary fiction, high art, critical praise, fan appreciation. These are all things that artists deal with, right? And like what are they going for? What are they striving for? And how I I think sometimes there is a false idea that they cannot be one and the same, and they can never be one and the same. And and part of that to, to me too is about him finding the artistic merit in Misery, in Misery, Chastain, the character and the series itself that he's writing and saying, yes, it's a it's it's a historical romance that is not my most, you know, brilliant pieces of work. But this book, this version I made I actually really like it. Like I got really into it. It was it was it was representative of the struggle I was going through as I was writing it. And you know what? I think he actually likes Misery, Misery's Return. And it's the best misery book he's ever written, he says. Yeah. Right. So he's come around to it, and he's found an affection for that art that is otherwise seen as like, you know, shallow or 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 not not a good book. At the beginning, he says, "I write good books and I write best-selling books." <laughs> there are two different kinds of books, and those are the two different kinds, right? Uh, as if they are mutually exclusive.
1: Yeah, and I do know, like, I, I agree with you. Obviously, the the idea of him like reclaiming misery and and sort of seeing it for for what it is and taking it back uh, for himself. But I also note he doesn't say at the end he's possibly gonna work on another misery story. He seems like he's gonna write something yeah. that is for himself.
0: That's key. He's too. saying I'm writing not, he's not only, if he was gonna only write misery books, it would also yeah. be kind of a failure. It's it's he's leaving that door open. He's gonna write And, other
1: things. and he's writing something that sounds ridiculous on the surface. He's writing about like a It boy Sounds like a literary a, premise to me. Skunk. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. A boy <laughs> finds a skunk and he's pushing it through a city in a in a cart. And I'm like, That sounds wild, but you know what? At the end of the day, it's what the artist wants to write. And I think that's kind of where he's coming back around to. And he's saying to whether in a meta And I think the key thing is it's
0: not going to appeal to the fans of Misery, the Misery books, right. right? Like he knows that.
1: Yeah. And at the end of the day, he's kind of saying in a meta-commentary is like, is, like I'm going to write what I want to write. Come along for the ride or don't.
0: Yeah. And there's an element of that to every author. And I think there should be to create something emotionally honest that people are going to connect with. But then there's also always going to be that element of chasing and and wanting to have readers like right, like he needs a reader and like we all need readers and we all need audience so um it's it's a push and pull always right like it's never going to go all one way or another and then you need to find a, a happy medium um, and then you know the whole I, I feel like we've underserved the whole addiction metaphor a little bit isn't this discussion we focus more on the artistic side. But there's a whole discussion there about the nature of addiction and the allure of it and um, getting it out of your life, but then also maintaining a healthy respect for it so that you don't fall back into destructive patterns. Um, things like that, I, th- I think, is all valid here to look at, too. Um, but, yeah, we're running out of time here, so I think this is where we're going to have to leave it. What a fun book to start off our season with. And again, I think this is going to be in contention at the end of the year, if not, if not number one for me. I, I really like this thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, first project we ever did for the podcast like almost seven years ago was a Stephen King project. So it always feels like kind of familiar territory getting to to go to King. And so starting a season off with King, really been enjoying it.
0: And I'm excited to get to the Rob Reiner adaptation and see how that yeah. holds up. Me too, man. I'm really interested to see this movie because I, I should have put this out at the beginning. This was not a book I'd ever read. I I think I've seen this movie, but I, maybe just parts of it. It's one of those movies where I'm like, I don't know if I ever watched the whole thing. I kind of, I knew the rough plot of it. I'm going to be so fascinated to see how this stuff makes a transition to the screen, what gets omitted, uh, what gets introduced. There was a lot of mystery elements that I thought were going to be picked up. Like I thought there was going to be reveals about Annie being the cause of the accident and like all this stuff. And then we didn't end up going there at all in the book. I wonder if we'll go there in the movie because, uh, I don't know. I think that would be tempting to a screenwriter. Um, so I'm really curious uh, uh, to see that uh, next week. But I also wanted to talk about how we are we are sort of rapidly approaching episode 300. Um, and we have some plans. And right before episode 300, we even have a special episode we're going to be doing. We are planning to have the author Paul Tremblay, which if you're a fan of Stephen King, is a name you should know. And we are going to have him on to talk about his adaptation, Knock at the Cabin, and how it relates to Cabin at the End of the World, his novel that it was based on. Uh, so that's going to be a kind of a unique episode for us. We've never had the creator on to talk about their work specifically. So I'm excited for that. So make sure to to, to pay attention to that. And then right afterwards, we're going to get into a special like Hall of Fame induction thing we're going to do for our 300th, um, which we'll we'll talk about more as we get closer to it, I think.
1: I'm excited for all of those things. I mean, it's big thing so far in, in 2024, and uh, yeah. I'm excited for everybody to come along for the ride. Be sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of those at InkToFilm. We're also on youtube make sure to subscribe and click the yeah. bell do all the things that they tell you to do on those
0: platforms and leave a comment let us know what you thought of our takes on misery and and, and how that conflicts with what you thought or if you agreed with us um also if you would like to support this podcast we have a patreon patreon.com slash ink to film speaking of the whole thing where we're talking about uh the upcoming episode of hall of fame inductions we do our initial narrowing in our upcoming uh bonus episode that's going to be releasing very shortly after this one where we're going to talk about why we chose the things we chose, why we narrowed it down to the ones we did, and how we're going to approach selecting three ti- three titles to be our first ever class for the Hall of Fame induction. Anyway, all of that is going to be on a bonus episode exclusive to patrons. So if you're curious about that, go to patreon.com slash ink to film, and we have all kinds of other bonus content on there as well.
1: And please leave us a rating and review on whatever platform you're on. I know it helps spread the word, so if you're on Apple Podcasts, if you're on Spotify, anywhere you're at, if you can leave yeah. a comment or a review, please do and uh yeah
0: spread the word tell your friends and thank you to ross bugden for the use of our intro and outro music all right that's going to be it for episode one of season eight uh hopefully you you stick with us it's going to be an interesting season excited to get to a lot of things until next time keep adapting